This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 15. It can be found on page 10 of your service guide. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your compassions never fail. But when you see us in our sin and in our need, you are always moved to act for our good. And you never fail to bring it to completion. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for calling us into his kingdom, for saving us through his death and resurrection. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us into the work of his kingdom to join him in the task. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would call us and equip us today so that every man, woman, and child in this room would be a faithful preacher of the gospel of Jesus everywhere that you've sent them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that if you're like me, when you saw the news of the tragic events in Perry uh, this past week, you probably felt something before you even thought something. It's like a gut punch when you hear that something like that has happened, especially when it happens so close to home. And the response of that gut punch is often, what do we do? We want to do something. That's what we see in the heart of Jesus this morning when he looks out on the lostness of the world. And I want to ask you, I want to ask us this morning, what is it that we feel when we hear the words missions or evangelism or witnessing or ministry? What do you feel? Is it guilt or anger, anxiety, apathy, fear, trepidation, or is it compassion? This morning we're going to look into the heart or the guts of Jesus and see what he's driven to do and calls us to join him in. So for almost for a year now at Grand Avenue, we've been following the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapters 1 and 2, which we revisited some at Advent, summarize the arrival of Jesus in which He is marked out as the King who has been sent, according to God's promise, to the people of Israel. In chapters 3 and 4, we see Jesus publicly announced and recognized as the Messiah, by John the Baptist, and at Jesus' baptism through God's own voice and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus driven into the wilderness like a new Israel where He successfully resists the temptation of the devil and trusts His Father. And then after that testing, He is sent into Galilee where He begins His public ministry, which consists of announcing the arrival of the kingdom. In Matthew 4, verse 22, we read, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus' public ministry consisted of two parts which go together. His words and His deeds. In Matthew chapter 7-5, through we spent a lot of time looking at Jesus' words, his announcement of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And then more recently in Matthew 8-9, through we've been looking at the deeds of Jesus which display the kingdom He's announced. He is cleansing lepers, healing the sick, the blind, the mute, raising the dead, ruling nature, casting out demons, forgiving sin. And through all of that, Jesus has been calling disciples to follow Him, and crowds of disciples have been growing as they've followed Him. And this morning's passage marks a bit of a transition. The ministry of Jesus doesn't change. In fact, what we read in Matthew 4.22, we see almost identical in the start of our, our passage this morning, where we read that Jesus continued 
going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. He's doing the same thing in word and in deed. He is announcing and he's displaying that the saving reign of God has arrived in him. And people ought to repent of their sins and receive the kingdom of God that's come in the King. But what changes now is the involvement of His disciples. Jesus was calling these disciples and telling them, I'm going to make you fishers of men, but from from chapter 4 through now, they've largely been passive participants. They've accompanied Him, but the ministry, the preaching, and these deeds, these miraculous signs have been performed by Him. We don't see them doing any of it. But that's about to change. As in our passage, Jesus calls His twelve disciples to join Him, a calling and a commission that will only grow through Matthew's Gospel until at the end of the Gospel, it's given to all of His disciples to go into all the world, and that includes us. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because what's going on here is something more than pragmatic. On the one hand, Jesus living as a human being is limited in time and in space. And because the crowds are growing, He can't do all the preaching and all the, all the signs that need to be done at this time and place. And so, practically speaking, He needs to send out His disciples. But it's always been God's plan since the beginning to exercise His rule in the world through His people. Because when God created human beings, He blessed them and said, let them rule. God's reign on earth, His dominion was to be exercised through His image bearers, ruling the world in a way that showed the world what God is like. And we see that at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. In the last chapter of the Bible, the last use of the word reign is of the people of the Lamb. And they will reign on earth. Because God redeems His Genesis purpose in the new creation of having His image bearers execute His reign on the earth. And so it only stands to reason that when the King arrives, He would gather His people and send them out with His authority to announce and display His reign in all the earth. And that's what we see this morning. And we'll find in this passage four ways in which we as believers are called to join the King in His mission. The first one is, we should see what the King sees. We should see what the King sees. In verse 36 we read that Jesus saw the crowds. And that that means something more than he just saw a large number of people physically present. First of all, he saw their state. Matthew writes that they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. The sheep were distressed or harassed. That means they were wounded and maimed and bleeding either from the attacks of hostile animals or from their own foolish wanderings into briar paths and off cliffs and into holes. Probably as a result of both. Because of sin and because of Satan, the curse has entered the world and now they are dejected. They are cast down and helpless. They're vulnerable to the jaws of predators, to infection, to starvation. And in the end, they will die. 
unless they receive help. They are alone, and worst of all, they have no shepherd to go find them, protect them, bring them home, and heal them. But Jesus didn't just see their state, Jesus saw their fate. You look at the end of our passage in chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What town is he referring to there? He's referring to the towns he's sent the disciples to in verse 6, to the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is sending them out into these towns in Israel to announce that the kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus. And these towns he refers to are those that reject the message of the kingdom. They are unwilling to receive the reign of King Jesus. And if they're unwilling to receive the arriving shepherd king, then they remain vulnerable, sick, and wounded, and they are going to die a death that is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah stood out in the Old Testament as sort of the epitome of an unrighteous region of people. The culmination of which is when these messengers are in town and the men come and say, Bring, send out the men, we want to have sex with them. Which is an act of abomination and an act of inhospitality when you have guests arrive and you say, bring them out so that we can rape them. If you think that is bad and it is terrible because it brings a, a storm of, of fire and brimstone that destroys them in a single day, Jesus says it will be even worse for those who are inhospitable toward the message of the kingdom of God. If you reject the reign of Christ, you will suffer a fate worse than fire and brimstone. For Jesus warns in chapter 10, verse 28, that those who reject Him will suffer the destruction of both body and soul in hell. We can look at Sodom and Gomorrah and their abominable sexual immorality. But know this, you can be an upstanding, religiously, faithfully practicing Israelite and your fate will be worse if you won't receive Jesus. That's what Jesus sees. And I would ask you, When you look at the world or turn on the news or scroll through social media, what is it that you see? Do you see our people versus those people? Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims? Do you see threats or helps to your temporary hopes and dreams? Or do you see the world as Jesus sees the world? Human beings who are dead in their trespasses and sins under the reign of Satan and headed to hell forever to be destroyed by something worse than fire and brimstone, be destroyed by the wrath of God that never, ever ends. If we're not seeing the world the way Jesus does, we need to ask Jesus this morning to give us eyes to see.
Because that is the true and the worst reality of the world apart from Christ. The second thing we need to do is to feel what the king feels. When Jesus saw the crowds distressed and dejected, we read that he felt compassion for them. Compassion is a strong emotional response. It's literally to, to feel it, to feel something in your viscera, in your guts. It is a gut reaction, a strong automated response of the body when it perceives that there is somebody in suffering and you and it moves you to go do something about it compassion in the gospels and especially when referring to the lord always results in some action to relieve that suffering compassion is why the father sent the son Compassion is what drives the good shepherd to lay down his life for his sheep. And compassion is what, expect, is what Jesus expects will cause his disciples to ask his father to do something about the state of the world. And so I'd ask us this morning, what is it that we feel when we see the world as Jesus does? Jesus didn't feel threatened or afraid or scared for himself. He felt compassion. These sheep are going to perish. Something must be done. What is it that you feel when you hear me talk about people going to hell without Christ? Does that message bore you because you've heard it so often and you know it's intellectually true? Are you apathetic? Or does it take your breath away that real human beings will continue existing forever as conscious as we are right now only in the worst torment that you could ever imagine and then some? That is a staggering truth that should punch us in the guts and bring us to our knees. As terrible as what happened in Perry is, a greater tragedy is coming on everyone who doesn't know Jesus. And that should make us hurt and want to act. And so then, the third thing we should do is we should pray how the King prays. In verse 37, Jesus draws His disciples' attention to the crowds using the metaphor of a field. He says the harvest is abundant. And that's great news. There's a huge crop out there in the field to bring it in. But it's like if you've ever lived in rural Iowa when a farmer has a medical tragedy or passes away at harvest season, right? He can't bring the harvest in. His widow can't bring the harvest in. And so what happens? His neighbors get on the phone and they start calling each other and sooner or later you'll see half a dozen combines in the field because they've all come to do the work of the harvest. Because a harvest in the field with no one to bring it in is no better than no harvest at all. It's going to rot and it's going to perish. It's an emergency. And so Jesus expects that when He points out the abundant harvest... 
out there in the world to his disciples, they will see what he sees and they will feel what he feels and therefore they will do what he tells them to do. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. In Luke 6, Jesus prayed all night before commissioning his 12 apostles. And we're called to follow the steps of our Savior. Are we praying as individuals and as a church that the Lord would send us and people from among us out into the fields with the gospel? And I'll tell you a spoiler, he's already answered that prayer. Because if you're a Christian, you're sent. When someone comes to us and says, you know, I think, I think I'm, I might be called to ministry. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay, then you are. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I might be called to preach. Okay, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay, then you are. Because every man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus is sent, as we will see, to proclaim, to preach the gospel as they go. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you're sent. And as we go, the more you work in the field and the more you see the size of the harvest and the, the more you see the inadequacy of your own going, and the more you will pray that God will send others to help us in the task. And praying is the first step because the harvest belongs to Jesus. He's the Lord of the harvest who does the actual sending. And apart from the Lord's authority and His presence, we labor in vain. And then so finally, the fourth thing we do, and this is our biggest point this morning, is we go as the King goes. We go in the way that the King goes. It's interesting that as soon as Jesus commands His disciples to pray that the Lord would send workers, He sends them. There's no tension between being called to pray and called to go. We're all called to both. For the rest of the passage, I want us to note how similar our going is to the Lord of the harvest who has gone before us. First of all, we go under the authority of the King. In Matthew, Jesus comes to us as the authorized ruler of God's kingdom. God announces at His baptism, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's a statement because in the Old Testament, the promised king would be like a son to God. Which is why later in Matthew's Gospel at the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's authorized by me to command and teach you. The Messiah reigns with God's authority, and so He is to be obeyed. And here, Jesus delegates His authority to His disciples. Summoning the twelve disciples, He gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And that authority is not limited to this specific mission in this time and this place with these 12 disciples. Because at the end of the Gospel, Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The same authority that commands these 12 in this mission will stand behind the sending of every believer in Jesus. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we 
are ambassadors for Christ since God is making His appeal through us. An ambassador is an authorized agent who goes and speaks with the authority of the One who sent Him. And so Paul writes, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And that authorized ambassadorship isn't limited to Paul and the twelve apostles. Because in Philippians chapter 4, Paul describes Euodia and Syntyche as women who have contended for the Gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. These men and women, these average lay people in the local church have contended, they have fought and they have battled side by side with Paul for the Gospel. That gospel ministry goes to every disciple in the church. All believers are sent under the authority of Jesus to proclaim that the kingdom has arrived in Christ and to command people to repent and to believe in Him. Going out with the king's authority should make the twelve bold as they go out into an increasingly hostile environment. And it should do the same for us. The King has sent us. We don't have any right to disobey Him. And the world doesn't have any right to disregard us. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the King. But as we go with the Christ's authority, we shouldn't get a big head. Because we should go in the humility of the King. In verses 2-4, through Matthew names the apostles that he summoned for this mission. And I'm not going to go into a biography of all of them, but I I want to say something simple here. Jesus didn't choose remarkable people to lead His church and fulfill His mission. One commentator notes, the highest level of society, so the highest class of people, Represented among the twelve was the four professional fishermen who are recognized later on in Acts as being uneducated men. That's the highest social class that we know of represented among the apostles. Others included a tax collector, an insurrectionist, and a traitor. Of course, there were many leaders of society who followed him, like the centurion of chapter 8, Jairus the ruler of the synagogue, and Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, who together buried him. But for his closest associates and the leaders of the emerging church, Jesus deliberately selected the dregs of society. That shouldn't surprise us, because the ambassadors of a king are no greater than the king himself. They don't rise above Him in His realm or in the realms to which He sends them. And what kind of social status does our King have when He arrives in the world? He's born to the scandal of an unwed mother and He has a feeding trough for a bed. In His infancy, His family is forced to flee into exile because the King of His people wants to kill Him. And that shouldn't surprise us because the prophet Isaiah told us exactly what kind of King would would arrive. He would simply be unbelievable. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, this is unbelievable, he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Nobody bets their money on the root in the dry ground because plants don't grow in droughts. Not the good ones anyway. 
He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at Him. He had no appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was sick and weakly. He was like someone people turned their faces away from. He was despised and we didn't value Him. When God sent His King to reign, Jesus arrived ugly and undesirable. The kind of person with the kind of ministry that the world turns its face away from because it can't stand to look at Him and they count Him as worthless. That's what the King is like. So what must His ambassadors be like? That doesn't change after the resurrection. In Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes the ministry of himself and Apollos this way, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, we are poorly clothed, we are roughly treated, homeless. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. And that's us too. For Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is significant and what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in His presence. The messenger is not greater than the message. The messenger is not greater than the one who sends them with the message. And the message we have is the one of the ugliness and the weakness and the foolishness of a crucified Messiah. And the medium is the message, and we as the messengers are the medium. We are fools. We are despised. We are rejected. We match the message. And that means we go in the humility of the King. And that should really encourage us. Because if God's greatest display of glory and the power, His power for salvation is the foolishness and the weakness and the ugliness of the cross, well then what can He do through us? It's not in the beauty or the power of those who go. It's in the power of the cross. Which is beautiful because of how appalling it is. That someone would lower himself to that extent because he loves us and wants to save us. Next we see that we go to the people of the King. In verses 5-6, through six, Jesus instructs the twelve to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We don't have time to discuss everything there, but we will say at this point in time, the mission of Jesus has been focused on Israel. And because the ones he sends reflect the sender, they're to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The king was promised to Israel, so he arrives to Israel and he offers the kingdom to them first. 
But we're called to go now to the nations, to the people, the king, and the true nature of God's people is hinted at in verse 14. Look at that. Jesus says, if anyone doesn't welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. The Israelites, when they had to travel through a Samaritan city or they had to go to a foreign land, when they got to the edge of Israel, they would take their sandals and they would shake the dust off them. As a symbolic way of saying, these pagans, these Gentiles are filthy, we're the pure people of God, and we're not going to carry any of their filth back into the kingdom. That's how you treat pagans in Israel. You shake the dust off your feet. And Jesus says, go to the Israelites, if they don't receive the kingdom, treat them like pagans. Because it doesn't matter what ethnic people you're born into. It doesn't matter what your religious practices are. If you reject the king, you're a pagan. And that stands this morning. I don't care how religious you are. If you're rejecting Jesus crucified for your sins and raised from the dead, you are of all men a pagan most most to be pitied. You're not part of the people of God even if you're a descendant of Abraham. We go with the message of the king. Jesus says, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out the demons. The message is to be proclaimed in our words and demonstrated in our deeds. And the message is the kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus. The king has come to crush the head of the serpent so demons are cast out. The king has come to wash away the impurity of our sin that keeps us from God's presence and so lepers are cleansed. The king has come to deliver us from the curse of sin which brings decay to the body and death and so the sick are healed and the dead are raised and as Matthew's gospel progresses the message of the kingdom becomes clearer and clearer how it is that Jesus does all that saving work in an ultimate sense Because near the end he will say, look, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised. And finally he makes the meaning of all that plain when he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He dies as a ransom, as a payment for those who are captive. He dies paying the penalty for our sins. Taking on Himself the wrath of God deserved for us worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He cancels our sin through His own death and obedience to God. And in canceling our sin and forgiving it, Satan can't accuse us. And the death and the grave cannot hold us. And His resurrection proves that. And it's all who receive that message Jesus as the ransom for you who are welcomed into His kingdom by grace through faith. And as much as our deeds need to exemplify the kingdom, we have to remember it's always necessary to preach the message of the gospel. Because Paul says they cannot believe unless they hear about Jesus. And they can't hear unless someone is sent. Finally, we go in the faith 
with the faith of the king. There's a lot we could say about verses 9 through 11. But for this particular mission, Jesus is forbidding his disciples from acquiring and gathering provisions and financial support. They're supposed to just simply go out with what they have and trust that the, the, the normal hospitality of the day will be given to them when they arrive in cities as the kingdom is being received. In later missions, Jesus tells his disciples that they should make provision. And Paul actually quotes the words of Jesus about a laborer being worthy of his pay to support the right of ministers to get paid by those he, they serve. So it's, it's complex as that idea is developed over the course of the New Testament. But the point of this passage, in this training mission for the twelve, is that they're to trust the Lord of the harvest to provide for them as they go. And that's no easy thing because next week we're going to see the hostility that's going to come from the world against those who proclaim the kingdom. But Jesus is not asking of us anything He hasn't done Himself. He relied on the hospitality of others to support His ministry. And ultimately, Jesus Himself, as the perfect human being, was a believer. Hebrews calls Him the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Because God had made promises to the Messiah that He would raise Him from the dead. Give Him a redeemed people and grant Him authority over all things. And Jesus goes to the cross walking not by sight, but by faith that His Father will keep those promises to Him. As Peter writes, He entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly. And so we do ministry in the same way that Jesus did. We go out into the world trusting that God will support us in every way in the ministry that He has called us to. And we can trust God to do that, even when the world hates us, because of the Gospel. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him grant us everything? Because Jesus has gone before us, Because God has given us Jesus, there's no good reason to be afraid to go out into the world with the gospel of the King. So may God help us to see and feel and pray and go as our Lord has before us. Let's ask Him to do that.